0: We're in 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 3. We're going to look at the first five verses. So if you want to open your Bible or follow along on your phone or tablet. The Apostle Paul, who tells us to be anxious for nothing, had a moment of high anxiety over the situation he'd left behind in Thessalonica. Let me refresh your memory. Paul and his companions had come to Thessalonica and preached the gospel. Seems they were only there for three weeks, maybe even less than that before they were literally run out of town by hostile Jews. Those same Jews followed Paul to his next stop and they hassled him there. If those opponents of the gospel were so committed to their cause that they followed Paul, what must they be doing back in Thessalonica to the brand new baby believers that Paul had left behind? It was this anxiety that caused Paul to say not once but twice When I could no longer endure it. We read that in verses 1 and 5. A few other Bible translations use the phrase, I couldn't stand it any longer. What was Paul so anxious about exactly? Well, look at verse 5. He says, Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. I think the best way to understand this is to read a part of the parable of the sower. Uh, Jesus' interpretation of his own parable. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said, and this is from Matthew chapter 13, this begins in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the word of God, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who receives the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Apparently there is a fierce struggle that occurs right at the time a person receives the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a critical time during which the devil goes all out to keep you from becoming established in the word. Having been run out of Thessalonica, Paul wondered if there were stony Thessalonicans, or stumbled Thessalonicans, or selfish ones whose lusts were choking out the word of God. He hadn't been there long enough to see them get established. In the Word. In the second half of the chapter, we're going to hear the good report from Timothy regarding the Thessalonian believers. They were hanging in there despite the devil's best efforts against them. To counter the devil, Paul sent Timothy to establish and to encourage. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight in these verses establishing and encouraging the gospel. So in verse 1, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, We thought it good to be left in Athens alone. Therefore, obviously, picks up where Paul left off in chapter 2, where he had explained he wanted to return to them, but he's being hindered by the devil. We don't know what was hindering him, whether it was some illness or injury or something else that we just don't know. For whatever reason, he could not return to them, and it was causing him some stress, some anxiety. Would you feel comfortable as a Christian saying to the church, "I just couldn't take it anymore"? If someone said that to you, you'd probably feel obligated to correct them. Uh, you probably wouldn't feel comfortable saying it. You'd think it's somewhat immature. You know, somebody comes and says, "Hey, I just need you to know, I just can't take this anymore." Well, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You know, and we can, and and that's true. But Paul, who said, be anxious for nothing, he says, I couldn't take it anymore. I was having such a such a hard time. Now, in his case, it was a good cause because he was worried about these young believers. It's interesting to me, for all his steely, cold logic, Paul comes across as extremely emotional. He definitely wore his heart on his sleeve. A lot of times you'll read in commentaries about Paul, how that, you know, uh, he he had this wonderful mind wrote all this doctrine book of Romans things like that and then they'll say that 2nd Corinthians is his most emotional book where he really bears his heart but as you're reading through almost all of his epistles he's always bearing his heart and his love for uh, the saints and telling them what he's going through and how he's feeling he's, he's a very emotional individuals of individual and I said he was anxious for a good cause he knew that the baby believers were coming under heavy fire and that their spiritual lives were literally hanging in the balance. If you take the parable of the sower seriously, uh, then there, there is a, a time when those individuals need to be encouraged and established in their faith. Now, Paul couldn't go back to Thessalonica, but apparently Timothy could. And so again, we're in the dark about what was hindering Paul. Uh, But it would mean leaving Paul alone in Athens. That's a bigger deal than you might think. It could expose Paul to danger from what we might call, for lack of a better term, criminal elements or the baser elements of society. A lone, older, somewhat crippled man was much easier to assault and rob than if he had a younger companion. There were tough times. Athens was a big city uh, and... um, Though, you know, Roman law was in place, uh, you you didn't want to be an old man living by yourself, traveling through Athens. It just wasn't, uh, it made you an easy target, an easy mark. If the police ever did seminars, you know, to people about, hey, what you don't want to do in Athens is be alone as an old man. You know, have some companionship. It certainly exposed Paul to danger from spiritual enemies. He would have much less accountability alone than with Timothy around. It's just safer to be with other Christians. It's safer spiritually because there is a, a positive pressure from accountability. And, and uh, I, I think that peer pressure among Christians is great. We need that. We need to meet together and pressure each other by our meeting together to be on the right road and on the right track. And it could hinder the progress of the gospel in Athens, only having one man to do whatever work needed to be done. Uh, And so this was a big sacrifice that Paul was going to make. He weighed the risks and he opted to sacrifice for the sake of the believers he'd left behind. It was a real and severe sacrifice on their behalf. And so again, it shows us his heart. Verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Silas was probably with Paul and Timothy in Athens, but he would be sent on his own mission back to Macedonia. Timothy was sent. The word speaks volumes about this young man's understanding that his life was no longer his, but that he belonged to the Lord. Traveling with Paul... Uh, It's exciting for sure if you follow his travels in the book of Acts. You just never know what was going to happen. Uh, And because of the work that he was involved with in planting churches and and all, uh, he could at any moment want to send you somewhere, either to strengthen a work that he had left behind or to open up a new area. And, of course, this is all done by the ministry of the Spirit, but uh, Timothy being sent speaks a lot about his character as a servant. He was ready to stay. He was ready to be sent. Wherever God could use him, he was ready. Uh, compare him to uh, the young John Mark earlier in the book of Acts, whom Paul and Barnabas took with them. He got to a point where he says, I don't, I don't like this missionary stuff. I'm flaking out. It's too hard. And he uh, got sent home or went home. Uh, and so Timothy, a young man, Um, totally sold out to the Lord. Now, note the progression in Timothy's description. He's called a brother, the minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. There's a lot of ways we could approach this, but uh, one way that's interesting... We could say that Timothy was an ordinary Christian like you and I. He was a brother in the Lord, or in some of your cases, a sister in the Lord. He had found his gifting. He's called the minister of God. The word there just means that he was a servant of God. But from reading uh, Paul's travels and the books that he wrote to Timothy and Titus, we know what uh, Timothy's calling was and what his gifting was to share the Word of God and to pastor. And he was in a specific assignment God had for him at that time because Paul calls him a fellow laborer with him in spreading the gospel of Christ. And so he was an ordinary Christian who had discovered his gifting up to that point and was posted in a certain place. If you are a Christian you should gain some understanding of how God has gifted you and you should be seeking him for specific assignments. How do you discover gifting? Well, very simply put, I think it's done in the Word and in the church. In the Word, of course, you see how God gifts men and women to serve him. There are lists of gifts, but more importantly, uh, there is just the understanding of the leading of and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And then you see individuals ministering one to another. You see Jesus ministering in his uh, earthly ministry. You see his disciples after him. You see exhortations in, in one another type scriptures and all. And so it's, it's great that there's lists of gifts in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, 1 Peter 4. Those are great. And we want to study the gifts as they're listed, knowing that it's sort of an open-ended list uh, there are more, you know, some people say there's nine gifts, some say 21, some say 22, but uh, generally you don't want to get too caught up in, in, you know, the number of gifts. You want to get caught up with the giver and just be open to be used by the Lord, uh, and, and, um, and, but you really want to see how the Holy Spirit used individuals, especially in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, to minister one to another. Uh, And see how that works in the church you have the opportunity to serve others and see how God uses you now as you know we don't we're real big on uh, telling you that the work of, of the church is to edify believers so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry outside the walls of the church. And so I understand that ministry isn't just what takes place at the church, but the church gives you a great opportunity to experiment, as it were, in ministering to others and serving others and seeing how God can use you or wants to use you, I always—I don't know why—but I always think of a story I was—I uh, heard uh, from Charles Swindoll when I used to listen to his radio program as a young Christian. And and just cutting to the the heart of the story, he talks about a guy he knew in seminary who was determined to be a pastor, who kept telling everybody that he had the gift of teaching, and his teachers and professors and friends kept trying to tell him that he really didn't have the gift of teaching, uh, you know. And and so finally, one astute professor. Uh, when he one day was trying to encourage him to go into a different direction in ministry, this young man said, I, but I have the gift of teaching. And he goes, well, then I guess no one has the gift of listening to you. Uh, and, and, you know, so sometimes you have to just be honest with people and just say, look, you don't have a gift for teaching. I, 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 it's, it's not an insult. It just means that God wants to use you another way. Or you're, you don't seem gifted in this area because it seems like it's a burden to you. You're, you're not doing it with joy or whatever. And so you can kind of figure out how you're gifted, where you're gifted, how God wants to use you. And so uh, just stay in the word and hang out at the church and be eager uh, to, to see needs and meet needs and you will discover all of these things. But so Timothy just an ordinary brother who had found his gifting up to that point and was on assignment for God. Now, Timothy had two priorities. Number one was to establish them concerning their faith, and number two is to encourage them concerning their faith. Establish means support, to strengthen, to make firm. We need to read these verses. uh, We need to actually read verse 3 to understand what kind of establishing they needed. So let's do that. In verse 3, it says, That no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. We'll read about the tempter in verse 5. He was attempting to shake them through afflictions. The word had been sown. And the devil was trying to stumble the young believers so that they would not endure. One way Timothy was to establish them was to remind them of what they already knew, that Christians are appointed to afflictions. And so Paul said, Timothy, get back down there. Uh, I know what the devil's going to do. Jesus laid it out in the parable of the sower. Uh, and especially since we know that the Jews in Thessalonica who are taken captive by the devil to do his will, they're already persecuting me and running me out of town and all, and they followed me here to where we're at. We know that, that the devil's gonna try and stumble them. And so let them know that we told them, remind them that we told them that they're in for afflictions. And this shaking uh, that he talks about, can't help but remind me of earthquakes. More so than here, uh, more so that, uh, here than in, in Central California, growing up in Southern California, you were always thinking about the big one. Do you, do you, really, do you guys really worry about earthquakes much here in Hanford, in Kings County? Is it a constant you know, fear that you live? I, I don't think so. Uh, I know we had the big Colinga quake, you know, was it, 83 or 84, or somewhere. I, I know there's earthquakes here, but they're not usually very severe in our area because of the sandy soil. But in Southern California, uh, you know, growing up there for the first 20 plus years of my life, we had some pretty big earthquakes that did quite a bit of damage. Uh, the big earthquake was always coming. And it was never a matter of if, but when it would shake things up. We were taught to stand in a doorway as this was supposed to be the strongest place, the most reinforced place in the house. And so um, I can remember many times as a, as a young man, a young boy standing in the doorway while the, you know, looking out the window while the pool water was, you know, you could, you could surf in the pool, you know. It was so just crazy earthquakes that we had down there. Timothy was sent to the Thessalonians while they were being all shook up in a devilish earthquake to remind them to stand in the door and they'd be safe. Just stand in the door. Jesus says, I'm the door. And uh, so just, hey, guys, you're being shaken. This is the devil. It's it's just like living in Southern California. You're living on a fault, and and the devil's going to shake you up. Just stand your ground. And then Timothy was to encourage them. Your Bible might translate it using the word comfort and that's a correct translation, but it's not the way we understand it. Comfort in the Bible is not what I call a sissy word. It isn't coddling, giving a blanket, making someone feel all warm and fuzzy. Comfort is a strong word that means to suck it up and hold your position. Timothy encouraged them by reminding them what we read in verse 4. He says, For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. This is sort of a spiritual version of I told you so. Paul had not minced words when he shared the gospel in Thessalonica. Before arriving there, he had been falsely arrested. He'd been beaten, and he'd been incarcerated in Philippi. He let them know that in the world they would have much tribulation, more than the average Joe or Jane, because they would become targets of the devil and his demons. And so Paul says, look, you need to comfort them, which means you need to tell them to stand their ground, suck it up, tough it out, because this is what it means to be a Christian, at least in this First century sense of, of the Roman world in Thessalonica. He says, You guys remember when I came, you didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, and then I shared the gospel, and I told you, and you could see in me, I had just been beaten and incarcerated and falsely, you know, and all for the sake of the gospel. So no one held back. None of us told you to try Jesus and see how that works for you, or give Jesus a chance, or, you know, we didn't come with a health and wealth gospel and tell you that Jesus is going to heal all of your afflictions and make you rich and famous and all of that. We didn't do that. We told you that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh who rose from the dead to save you from your sins and that by grace through faith in Him, God can justify you. You can stand before Him just as if you'd never sinned and inherit eternal life, but you're going to have a tough go of it In the world because in the world Jesus said you'll have tribulation he said you can be of good cheer because I've overcome the world but that doesn't mean you're not going to suffer and so Paul said Timothy you got to get down there you don't you're gonna comfort them and not in that coddling way you're gonna let them know that this is what has to happen in the Christian life and if somebody's being persecuted for righteousness sake you're gonna tell them that they ought to rejoice about that rather than complain about that And if they're just suffering in general, then you need to let them know that that's what's to be expected. And so my idea of real spiritual scriptural comforting is to remind you of what you already know or should know, so you'll be strengthened to endure tribulation rather than seek to escape it. Now, I'm like you. I I want to escape all trouble. I, I want to be the Houdini of trials. Just get me in a trial that I, I can escape out of in the next few minutes, you know. It looks bad, but there's always a way out. And uh, I, I, like you, need somebody to say, hey, this is, this is the Christian life. You, you, this, you're, you're in for some trouble, uh, but you can endure it and you can come out on the other side of it with a testimony. Timothy was to establish and encourage them concerning their faith. Now, faith in Jesus Christ had put them in harm's way. Until they heard about Jesus, they were no threat to the devil. They were, as I mentioned earlier, taken captive by him to do his will. I I quote that a lot. It's um, from the pastoral epistles. It doesn't mean that that these people were possessed or that all non-believers are possessed or demonized. It just means that They're uh, in a position to be used by the devil. Uh, He can incite their normal passions, their greeds, and their lusts, and their pride to work against God's people. And, and, um, you know, the Bible says that that you're taken captive by the devil to do his will. He has you, if you're a non-believer, at his disposal. And some of you have worked with bosses like that. Some of you have fellow employees like that right now who are you just they're, they're just mean they're just nasty they're they do ugly things they, there's no reason they're just expressing that nature that sin nature and they seem to be inspired almost by the devil against you by professing faith in Jesus they'd become enemy combatants no faith no worries faith in Jesus well that's going to lead to warfare paul believed their salvation Hung in the balance at first. He says in verse 5, For this reason, when I couldn't stand it any longer, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. He wanted to know their faith. That means he wanted confirmation that they were standing strong in their faith in Jesus Christ. In terms of the parable of the sower, he wondered if the seed had fallen on stony ground and not taken root in them. Paul chose to call the devil the tempter. The only other place the devil is called the tempter is in Matthew's gospel when he is tempting Jesus out in the wilderness. The devil opposed Christ and he will oppose Christians. I think that's the, the meaning that Paul's getting at. He goes, he goes, Jesus had the tempter in the wilderness and you guys, while you're in the wilderness of this world, you're going to have the tempter as your enemy as well. It's a, it's a, if it happened to Jesus thing, it's going to happen to you as well. Paul was reminding them that they could and should expect satanic opposition and assault for being believers. Knowing the fierceness of our enemy and the fickleness of human nature, Paul's anxiety seems reasonable. Some seed falls on stony ground and the devil's attacks reveal its shallowness. When folks are made to suffer, especially for the sake of the gospel, they can stumble and forsake it. Over the years, all of us, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, but I can name dozens of individuals who um, came to Christ and then the Lord, you know, seemingly came to Christ and then the Lord didn't fulfill their expectations and they quickly faded away. Uh, They came to Christ probably making a bargain thinking that the Lord was going to fulfill something in their lives and when it didn't go exactly the way they thought, then they, um, later on, you found that they had no faith whatsoever. Now, hadn't Paul called these guys God's elect earlier in the book? Well, sure, he had, but that was after Timothy returned with his report that they were indeed standing fast. In other words, Paul, Paul is writing back to them this letter after Timothy has already come back and given him a report. Here in this chapter, he's going over what was going on in his heart when he sent Timothy to them. And he says, man, I was so concerned about you guys. I couldn't take it anymore. I I just, I I had to know whether or not our labor had been in vain. And praise the Lord, he will say our labor was not in vain, but uh, the word of God took root in you and produced wonderful fruit. If you've been saved a while, the devil still utilizes tribulations against you. It's not so much to steal the seed of the gospel as if you were never saved, but it can cause you to withdraw to take yourself out of the battle. It's a strategy that the devil uses. You know, the, the truth is, I don't have time to go into it right now, and I'm not all polished up on it, but the devil only has a handful of strategies. They're good ones, though, and they, they work. If something works, you might as well keep doing it, right? Right. I mean, he doesn't have to keep inventing new strategies because he understands human nature pretty well. And there's a few things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, things in those categories always work for the devil when people aren't on their toes. Uh, And and so he, so Paul knew what the devil was going to do to the Thessalonians and and he could have this counter strategy. But um, so as we get older in the Lord, it's not so much to steal the word so that we'll renounce Christ, but he still comes in tr- with his troubles and piles them on and piles them on because they can affect Christians in another way, and that is to cause you to withdraw and take you out of the battle. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 16, we read, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Verse 16, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And so Paul is in 2 Corinthians 4, and he's talking about uh, losing heart. And in between, he talks about being hard-pressed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down and being delivered to death. Those tribulations, he says, contribute to make you lose heart, which is to grow discouraged to the point of withdrawing from the fight. And the exhortation, the comfort, and the the, uh, the encouragement and the establishing is to hang in there, because it's a war whose outcome is decided, and you are on the winning side. Now, if you've been listening the past little while to our studies, you might have noticed we've been talking about the devil and spiritual warfare quite a lot. It's because so has the apostle Paul. Satan is a major character in both opening chapters of First Thessalonians. In chapter one. Uh, And two, he talked about uh, the devil hindering him coming back to them. Here he's talking about him being a tempter. And you know what? The devil's a major character throughout the Bible, from the Garden of Eden when he makes his first appearance all the way until he's thrown into the lake of fire in the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I just read an interesting article. Its uh, title was, Where is the Devil in Contemporary Christianity? The author claims, I uh, quote, most conservative Protestants will not openly or blatantly deny the non symbolic existence of Satan or demons, and if pressed, will claim to believe in them as non symbolic realities of some kind. But in my experience, anyway, most uh, pastors and theologians don't really want to deal with them. They're left aside and rarely mentioned in sermons, Sunday school lessons, and Bible studies. And so, the danger that we have is it's easy to go overboard into the devil and demons and demonology. some people do this where you know they get deep into this teaching that you you have to find out what the territorial spirits are in Hanford and find their names and where they come from and you know in order to do battle with the devil and that's all bogus by the way the the one place you read about something like that is in Daniel Daniel is praying and praying and praying, and he's, he's seeking the Lord and repenting, and the angel comes to him and says, I tried to get to you sooner, but I was hindered by the prince of Persia. There was a demonic wrestling match going on, and finally I had to tag out and get Michael to come and help me so that I could come to you with this revelation, and here it is. He gives him Daniel's the vision of the seventy weeks and then he heads back to to help Michael in the battle Daniel did not have to know anything about that he didn't have to break through it wasn't his prayer that broke through to find out the name of that demon or the territorial spirit or anything It, it just opens the veil so you think yeah there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in the spiritual realm I don't really have to know about that except to know that it exists and so it's easy to get really deep into all of that stuff. But I think mostly, I, I kind of agree with this, I think most of the time we, uh, we get to these passages about exorcisms and demons and uh, the things that Jesus did in his ministry, and we think, well, you know, obviously there was a lot more demonic activity on the earth when Jesus was on the earth, and that's our way of saying so. We don't really have to talk about that very much right now. We can talk about things that are more palatable. And I, I'm starting to understand that there's probably not less demonic activity on the earth now than there was when Jesus was on the earth. If anything, there might be more because the devil knows that he's a short timer. He's, he's digging in and he's pulling out his big guns. And so we want to have a proper balance in this area. Paul considered the devil a very real and terrible opponent of the gospel who could hinder his progress And he talked openly about it. He says, the devil broke up the road in front of us. I can't get back to you, but I have a counter strategy. I'm going to send Timothy, and here's what's going to happen. And there's all of these things going on all of the time. And so um, we believe believe that there's a, a, a severe spiritual warfare. And this idea of spiritual warfare helps me at least to understand what's really going on in the world. There really is an opponent of God. And, uh, you know, uh, I know we, we look at the devil and we say, I want to say this carefully because I don't want to be misunderstood, and I'm not sure I fully grasp everything about it, but um, sometimes we, we, we talk about the devil as a tool in God's hand, the, how God can use the devil in, in order to accomplish his purposes. And I think I'm trying to back off from that. It's not that I don't believe God is in charge, but... I think the devil is opposed to God, that he hates God, that he's trying to destroy the work of God. And God can overcome that. God can work through that. God has beaten him at the cross, even though he allows him to still do certain things. There are limits and permissions, obviously. But I don't like the idea that in God's toolbox is the devil. And he says, okay, hey, devil, I need you today. I need you to wreak havoc on the world. It almost makes God the author of evil, which, is an impo- which he cannot be. And so I think we need to keep the devil in mind. There is a real opposition to the work of God, to the kingdom of God. The battle's been decided. The war is won. I've been using the example of D-Day. But between D-Day and V-E-Day and V-J-Day, the victory in Europe and victory in Japan, there was almost a year of solid fighting. Once D-Day happened, The war was essentially over, and everybody knew it, but there wasn't surrender until uh, V.E. Day and then V.J. Day, and uh, that's kind of where we're at. The war is over. The devil is a defeated foe. Jesus beat him on the cross, but we're in a time before the, the, the full surrender has taken place at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and actually beyond that at the... Uh, the end of the millennium when there will be one final rebellion and the Lord will destroy Satan by throwing him in the lake of fire. And so in the meantime, don't allow the devil to stumble you. Don't let him make you lose heart. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.14, he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. We can't lose. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Amen? Amen. All right.